you are listening to a sermon from the Mulvane Church of Christ in Mulvane, Kansas. Subscribe in your favorite podcatching app or find and listen to any sermon online at mulvanechurch.com slash sermons. Tonight's study brings us to Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 14, a study that we've entitled Christ Great Priesthood. We find that uh, in uh, the book of Hebrews, as we go through the outline, uh, we find that there are arguments, and we've labeled uh, those in uh, the section on the left, and the exhortations in those sections, we've labeled those on the right. We just finished the second exhortation, the great exhortation, on the danger of not believing God's word. The arguments prior to that had been that Christ was greater than the angels, that uh, Christ uh, is very favorably compared uh, to humanity, uh, yet became human to help us, that he is greater than Moses. And then that is where that great uh, exhortation on not believing uh, occurred. And now we're back to the argument section, the first part of the argument on the priesthood of Christ. The author will interrupt his exhortation, uh, telling us that he's interrupting it and telling us why he interrupts it uh, when we get down to uh, the 11th verse of chapter 5. And we're going to find out about the dangers of spiritual immaturity and the dangers of falling away. Then the confidence he has in them uh, through God's word and the confidence we can have in God's word. And then back to the comparison uh, on the priesthood, Christ's greater priesthood, particularly as he compares Christ and Aaron, the grandfather of all the priests, uh, the granddaddy of them all, and the head of the line. So we'll have two parts uh, on the greater priesthood as the writer interrupts himself to make an exhortation. But let's read the first part of the argument on the great priesthood of Christ, realizing we just finished the section where we're told about uh, the word of God, which can judge the thoughts and intents of the heart. It begins in chapter 4, verse 14, saying, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. For every high priest taken among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided since he himself is beset with weakness. And because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes this honor to himself. It's when he is, he receives it when he's called of God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become high priest, but he has said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Just as he says in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears 
to the one who's able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety or his fear. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God as a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. I'm not sure in this section which is the stronger theme of the writer, the the call of God, uh, of Christ to this priesthood, or the sympathy that he has uh, with us in his priesthood. Those are sort of the the two main ideas uh, that come through here. It's of God, and it is certainly greatly beneficial for us. So we're going to take this part of the argument, and we'll not be uh, going in extreme uh, detail or, or super slowly, uh, partly because some of these things are brought up again after the exhortation about you need to know better uh, in chapter 7. So some of this we'll save for further uh, look there. And other of these things we could take each phrase and make a, a fine sermon from, but uh, uh, we'll try to look at it in its whole. And so we'll divide this into three parts tonight. The part that's in chapter 4, the great uh, uh, priest of mercy and grace, the God-sent helper, and how Jesus is qualified by God's promise, also by his own uh, faithfulness and fear of God, uh, fear toward God, reverence and respect uh, as well. But uh, Jesus qualified by the promise of God. So we start with this great high priest, this great and merciful helper. Now, having just come out of that exhortation to not neglect God's word, all of us, having read that, would go, well, I've sort of neglected God's word. I've not always uh, taken it uh, with, you know, united that word in my heart with faith. Uh, I've not followed that word as complete as I ought. Well, what about me? Now, you know, I'm not uh, reprobate of the faith. I haven't made shipwreck of the faith. Uh, I've not uh, cast my faith aside. But, uh, you know, I'm going to need some help doing this. So, Uh, comes this, this great high priest. So therefore, because God knows everything, God knows, uh, you know, the thoughts and intents of our heart, and that's for both good and ill, right? Uh, Sometimes we didn't do very well, but we intended better. Uh, Sometimes we didn't intend very well, and we didn't do very well either. But God knows us fully and deeply, and so he knows what kind of help we need, and he sent a helper suitable for that task. Just as in the garden, it wasn't good for man to be alone, God sent a helper meet a helper suitable, right, in in Eve for Adam. Well, for all of sinful mankind, God sent the helper meet. He sent the helper suitable. He sent the helper needed. And it was a great high priest, one who's passed through the heavens. So we need that both earthly and heavenly. We need the one who's been through the heavens. He came down from heaven. He went back through heaven. He's a, uh, He lives in that realm. He does well there. But he also came and he did well here too. We have Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So, hold fast to your confession. Well, what have we confessed as Christians? What do we call the good confession? Uh, Apostle Paul told Timothy, uh, you know, hold fast that good confession you made uh, before uh, many witnesses in 1 Timothy 6. And he said that uh, Jesus made the good confession himself before Pontius Pilate. And what did Jesus confess? I am a king, right? I am 
the ruler of this world. So that's our good confession. Uh, we confess what Jesus confessed. We hold fast to that which he came and he did. And so there's no other name, Acts 4, uh, of which uh, under heaven or among men, by which we must be saved. There's salvation in no one else. So hold fast to the saving confession. We hold fast to the Savior, right? We confess the Savior, and he saves us. So our, our Savior, the one who saves us. And so here he is, now the helpful Savior, coming in the role of a priest. And we might think of all the roles which Jesus have, right? Well, we often summarize the three biggies, prophet, priest, and king. Well, here would be the priestly part. And so we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize uh, with our weaknesses, but one who's tempted in all things, yet without sin. And so don't think because he's from heaven, he's passed to the heavens, he's currently seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Don't think he still doesn't know what life was like here. He can sympathize in every way and in every detail. He knows what life is about. So we think about the people, and sometimes we're dismissive of them. Uh, we say, well, they live in ivory palaces, right? Uh, academics or uh, people of extreme wealth or uh, people who are helped all day long uh, in all their, their daily tasks by uh, you know, a retinue of servants so that they don't know what life is like for everybody else. There was a famous uh, political case of this uh, a few years back. Uh, I believe it was the uh, first President Bush. Uh, he went on a on a uh, you know, political uh, sightseeing and uh, photo op trip to the local supermarket. And in between the time that he had last gone grocery shopping and the time that he did that uh, trip as president, uh, the stores put in those optical scanners, which now are in every store, and where they just scan the groceries as they pass it over the uh, over the uh, red light. And he was you know thrilled by that. He he, he found that to be an amazing thing. And he couldn't believe that it worked so quickly and so efficiently, and he, he was kind of impressed by technology. Well, his opponents made great hay about that, talking about how out of touch he was, that he didn't know how the grocery store worked. Well, you know, the guy had been in high government service for years. I'm sure that he and his wife are not the people who spend a lot of time in the kitchen. And even if they did, uh, probably uh, they were, you know, uh, cooking the meals uh, or somebody else had brought in the gourmet ingredients because, I mean, they, they just would have been. And so he was, on that one particular point, a bit out of touch. And uh, it's legion, the the, idea, the uh, incidences where people are just completely uh, out of touch with reality. A few years ago, somebody asked, uh, there was a gathering of really rich people, I think it was in Martha's Vineyard or someplace, and a guy took a microphone out there and started doing man-on-the-street interviews. And I got to tell you, if you ever see a guy with a microphone standing on a corner anywhere you're at, do not answer questions in front of him and his camera. <laughs> They're there for the purpose of making you look silly. But these uh, these very rich people, trust fund babies and the like, they started asking them, well, how much do you think, you know, like a pair of uh, tennis shoes cost? How much do you think these, the, you know, this or that cost? Uh, or how much do you think people get paid uh, in in doing various jobs? And, and their answers were just ridiculous. They had no clue as to how, you know, somebody who watches the budget and does their own shopping lives. Well, here's Jesus come from heaven. Uh, does Jesus understand how many hours of work it takes to feed yourself? Does he understand about, uh, you know, the, the hours it takes uh, to uh, procure the food and prepare the food and put it on the table? 
Does he understand uh, how many hours then it takes uh, to take those, uh, you know, the dirty implements and dirty dishes and get them all cleaned back up and put back in the cupboard so they can rest there for an hour or two before they get out for the next meal? Yes, Jesus understands all of that. He's not one who just can, you know, saunter in uh, from the golf course or from the uh, leather-clad office and just, uh, you know, eat what somebody else made and then go back to whatever, ever, you know, uh, thing he was doing. In everything that we have in life and experience, Jesus can sympathize. And so it particularly mentions when we're tempted. Well, we have a holy Savior. We have one who is holy God, uh, who another text says cannot be tempted by evil. And we go, well, how can he possibly understand what I'm going through? Well, just because he uh, evil doesn't appeal to him, evil doesn't stir up desires within him, uh, which are untoward uh, and which cause, you know, bring forth uh, lust and sin. That doesn't mean he doesn't understand how people aren't tempted uh, by them. He understands that those things appeal to us. He had a body like ours with uh, the same, uh, you know, God-given desires and God-given needs. Uh, he's a man who was thirsty, who was hungry, who was tired, who bled, uh, who uh, was greatly injured, uh, he's a man who experienced uh, everything in life that there can possibly be except for the corruption of sin. And and he suffered the effects of the corruption of sin in everybody he, he dealt with, and particularly those who uh, made it a point to uh, reject and crucify him on false charges, right? He was charged with you know uh, not following the commandment and, and being a blasphemer. He, he, he definitely, he, did, he wasn't a blasphemer. And he followed the law of God. Not following the commandments, being a blasphemer, that's what we did, not what he did. So in everything except for doing wrong, uh, he had the full range of all of human experience. And uh, every day of his life, every step of the way, uh, was within that world that exists as a consequence of sin. Now, he didn't add to it or participate in it. He came to destroy those works of the devil. But he fully appreciated what it was he was here to destroy. And so he can aid and cares to aid those who are tempted. So he was tempted in all things as we are, yet, yet without sin. So because we have somebody who's in high position, fully understands what's going on with us, he says in verse 16, is able to help us. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so this is called the throne of grace. Now, usually a thing is named for its, uh, you know, uh, most obvious or uh, most important attribute, right? Where, where does the president uh, do his work from? Well, the Oval Office. Well, what do you know about the Oval Office? Well, I know it's oval. Right, I know the shape of the place. Uh, where is the Oval Office located? In the White House. Well, uh, there's a lot of things I don't know about the White House, but what do I know about it? I know it's white, right? And so there are some things uh, that, that are named for their most important attribute or most notable attribute. This is the throne of grace. How many things does God take care of how many things does God do? How many things 
in the attributes and actions of God could we name his throne for? Well, that's the creator throne, right? Or that's the great artistic throne. That's, uh, that's the great judgment throne. That's the great whatever throne you want to name. But Jesus sits where? On the throne of grace. So this is its most important and notable attribute. It is the thing about this throne that you should most recognize. It is there as a place for the dispensing of grace. Well, if you go to the throne of grace, what are you going to find? Well, I didn't ever, I've never been to the Oval Office. I've been to a one-to-one complete replica of it at a presidential library. And when I went to the replica of the Oval Office, I found it to be an oval. If you go to the throne of grace, what would you find there? Grace. It says you're going to find mercy and grace to help. When? In the time of need. You'll find it when you need it. And so go to him in your need. Go to him with confidence because he will help you when you need it. In 1 Corinthians 13 is the great promise that he'll help us to overcome uh, temptation. In 1 John 1, in verse 9, is the great promise that if we confess sin, he's faithful and righteous to forgive us our sin. And in 1 John 5 is the great promise that in whatever we ask, we know that he hears, and the request that we have asked of him uh, will be uh, considered and given. And so, ask for help when you're tempted to sin. Ask for help when you do sin. Ask for help in the things that you need day by day. Why do we ask just about at every service, at the beginning of it, why do we ask, are there prayer requests? We ask for that all the time, don't we? So that people can share with one another things, which certainly they've already been praying for themselves, but that they can share that burden with others who are thus concerned. We can all together cast our cares upon him. So we've got this great priest who is full of mercy and grace. He is on our side. I think about the you know, this uh, uh, bit that the um, a TV news station, it was Channel 2 in one of the places I used to live. They had a thing, and it was, uh, I think it was one or two nights a week. It was called Two on Your Side. And people would send in their their complaints or their concerns or their needs that weren't being taken care of usually by local city government, uh, not always government, sometimes uh, businesses, uh, particularly mechanic shops, it seems like, but other kinds as well, where certain promises have been made and certain things would be done or certain responsibilities weren't being met. And these people would show up uh, to the people who were supposed to be taking care of a thing with their TV cameras and say, I'm so-and-so from Channel 2, and I, we're here with a complaint that uh, – some of our viewers have brought us, what can you do about it? And sometimes no an action got uh, taken place. But a lot of times, a lot of things happen. People didn't want to be embarrassed on television. Uh, people didn't want to have that exposed. And so a lot of times they helped or uh, they would, uh, sometimes people wouldn't be helped. Uh, the, the plight of this uh, unfortunate individual or family would be broadcast. And then they'd have a follow-up story a week later and say, uh, we didn't get a resolution but volunteers from this company or that company or, or this place, this agency 
they've stepped in and they're going to help out now. And it was just amazing just having somebody with a little bit of power and not much power beyond the ability to turn the spotlight of notoriety on a person. Just that much power was able to solve a lot of problems. Of course, that didn't come close to solving all the problems of this city, but it was nice to know that somebody was getting some help somewhere. But that tagline, two on your side. And I think about that with this. Here we have Jesus on our side. Here is Jesus, the high priest, uh, the, the, the sympathetic high priest of the people, the son of God, the savior. And he's on your side to dispense grace and mercy. How much help and how effective of help can he give? And so in chapter five, we go on uh, with him, the gentle helper. And we find out the benevolent design of the priesthood, why there were priests given among men. For every year, or excuse me, for every high priest, we'll get to the every year part later in the book, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in the things pertaining to God. So the, that's the, their place, is there to uh, help people in the things that pertain to God, religious, spiritual uh, matters, things of faith. And so they do this, and they offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He, the high priest, can deal gently with the misguided, since he himself is beset by weakness. So here's the priest. He is supposed to be gentle to the people. Now, you, you read the, your Old Testament, and particularly your Gospels, Book of Acts as well. How many high priests failed in this basic task of being gentle? How many of them are just arrogant aristocrats, right? They're, they're the head of a hierarchy. Uh, they're in it for the power. They're in it for the position. They're, they're in it to preserve some earthly attainment or some earthly status. And so they just fail in this t most basic of things of dealing gently with the ignorant and misguided. This is supposed to be a compassionate office. I might also say there's, uh, I wouldn't call preachers priest, but I'd say there's some overlap in this regard is there not, and how many of those who minister in the Word, again, on behalf of the people and the things of God, how many do fail in just the basic test of being gentle? Uh, and not just preachers, but sometimes elders or others who have various authorities. They're just unapproachable sometimes. Uh, they don't listen. They can't seem to take any correction or any inquiry. Well, not Jesus, not the highest and best one of them all. And so these priests should have dealt gently, and they should have offered uh, sacrifices. Uh, they were offered sacrifices for themselves and for others because they themselves know their own sin. And so they should be, on that basis, especially gentle uh, with people. Uh, because of it, he's obligated to offer sacrifices for sin, verse 3, as for himself and also or as for the people, and also for himself. Well, we can read about that kind of thing. Leviticus 9, Moses said to Aaron, Come to the altar, bring your sin offering and your burnt offering, that you may make atonement for yourself and the people. Then make an offering for the people. And so the priest recognized, should have recognized, his own sinfulness, 
he would have to make offerings of him for himself before he could do for the others. And in this regard, Jesus is sympathetic, more so than the priests were, even though he didn't have sin, such as his greater ministry. And about this, verse 4, no one takes this honor for himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. Well, here we could go and branch off into a nice long study about a guy named Korah in his rebellion in number 16, where he said, hey, all the people are holy, we can all be priests. And that didn't last very long as an argument uh, and as a, uh, you know, kind of a, a, a going alternative to the priesthood of Aaron because God just had the ground swallow him whole. And that was the end of him. So you don't get this honor for yourself. You get this honor from God, even as, as Aaron was. And so you think now about God uh, sending Jesus. He didn't, uh, Jesus didn't take this for himself. Jesus didn't take this on of his own. He's not the Messiah, the prophet, the priest, the king, the mediator, the savior, because he said, yeah, I'm just going to do that. He was sent by God to do it. It wasn't a a usurpation of anything by a man named Jesus. It was God in the flesh who came as Emmanuel, God with us. And he didn't take this on himself but he was the God-sent gentle helper, as the priest should have been. So we find that uh, it wasn't by himself. It was the promise of God that allowed this to be, verse 5. So also Jesus, also Christ, did not glorify himself so as to become high priest. So he didn't take this glory on himself. It was given to him as the role that God had assigned him. But he said... You are my son, today I have begotten you. And so this is a quote of Psalm 2 and verse 7. Uh, verse 6 of Psalms 2 says, As for me, I installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. He said to me, You are my son, today I have begotten you. So God decreed that this is my son whom I have begotten. I will make him a king on the holy mountain Zion. Well, who ruled the holy mountain Zion? It was the priest, right? Zion was God's holy hill. Zion is the place of the temple. And he's a king in that temple. How? Well, by the decree of the Lord. How do we know that was God's decree? Because this promise, you are my son, today I have begotten you. In Acts 13 Uh, This is quoted applying to the resurrection of Christ. It's a parallel statement uh, to that which we find in the first gospel sermon of Acts chapter 2. Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that this Jesus whom you crucified, God's made him both Lord and Christ. Well, how do we know that? Well, Romans 1, 4, he raised him with power from the dead. He he conquered death. He's now the king. He's the king? Yes, he conquered death by the promise of God. Yeah, that makes him the king. Uh, you know, just like the ancient English people, you pull that stone out of a rock, you get to be king of the land. Well, you come back from the dead by the promise of God, you get to be the promise, you get to fulfill all the promises of God, which is, yes, you're the priest, you're in charge. You've conquered death. You're the savior of us all from death. Yes, sir. That's good. Well, we acknowledge that, right? Uh, he gave him such authority 
like in the Great Commission, all authority in heaven and earth because he has authority over death and Hades. He has authority over life and death. The promise of God then went on to say, again from Psalm 2, ask of me and I'll surely give you the nations as your inheritance. Now who serves Jesus? Those of every tribe, nation, tongue. To the very ends of the earth is your possession. Daniel 2, the great uh, mountain that's the kingdom of God. Where does it do it? It grows and fills the whole earth. You will break them with a rod of iron. You will shatter them like earthenware. What happens when any people persist long enough in rebellion against King Jesus? They go away and they don't come back. Now, therefore, O king, show discernment. Take warning, O judges of the earth. Worship the Lord with reverence and rejoice with trembling. Do homage to the Son. Do not be he and so that he will not be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath will soon be kindled. But how blessed are those who take refuge in him. And so Psalm two spells it all out. Here's the anointed of God. God made him a king. God calls him his son. And God says, give honor and homage to the son. God's made him his only begotten. And so, We have this other promise now, verse 6 of Hebrews uh, 5. Just as he said in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now, of this we can say much, and we'll leave it for chapter 7 because over there much more is said about it. But just know it's a quotation of Psalm 110 and verse 4. And again, I just keep being impressed all the time is the Jews who lived in rebellion uh, to the Messiah. How did they sing the hymns, the psalms, in the synagogue? Did they just have a bunch of psalms they could no longer sing? Or did they just they sing the songs refusing to acknowledge their meaning? You're a priest forever in the psalms, Psalm 110, quoted five times in the New Testament as well, uh, because... Uh, there's others that, other things there as well as um, the uh, priesthood by order of Melchizedek. It's also the stone the builders rejected became the cornerstone passage. That's in Psalm 110, verse uh, 1 and 2. But you're a priest forever by the order of Melchizedek. So here's the one who has uh, been lifted up, uh, been not taking this honor on himself, but by the promise of God made to be the priest after the order of of Melchizedek. That's in Genesis 14, verses 17 on, where Abraham worshiped God uh, with uh, Melchizedek, the priest of the Most High God, who was the king of Salem. And he's a type of the Christ. And so the king of Salem, who's a priest of God. So he's king and priest on the holy mountain. Who's the king and priest on the holy mountain? That's Jesus. But there was a forerunner of that. There was, a, uh, there was an Old Testament uh, picture of that. And Abraham, uh, the father of the faithful, he worshiped God with Melchizedek, giving Melchizedek a, a tenth of all the spoils, giving a tithe to him after he had defeated uh, those kings who had come uh, from, from Damascus and from the north and taken Lot captive, and Abraham freed them. So by the promise of God, after the order of Melchizedek, not by the order in, in the way of Aaron, but in the way of the one by whom Abraham worshipped, Jesus is made forever a king 
Okay, quite a bit more about that to come in chapter 7. So now, in the days of his flesh. So he's qualified by God's promise. He's also qualified by his character. Uh, We think about how so many of the priests uh, in the time of the Testaments, they really should have been disqualified by their terrible conduct. Jesus was in no way disqualified. He's qualified by God, and he meets all the qualifications, both in person and promise uh, and and, and the, his lineage, but also in his character. Verse 7, in the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplication with loud crying and tears to the one who's able to save from death. And he was heard because of his piety, or many translations will say because of his fear, or possibly godly fear. And so here is faithful Jesus. We've already been told in comparison with Moses, who's faithful over his house, that Jesus was faithful back in chapter 3. Here's another testament to the faithfulness of Jesus. Now, again, not usually how we uh, have, I think, in our mental conception of Jesus as a faithful person. But here is Jesus, a faithful person, faithful to God. And uh, the writer here brings up his constant prayer. And whenever we teach lessons on prayer, uh, usually there's a section or lesson or even multiple lessons on the prayer life of Jesus, because who ever prayed more than Jesus did? The one closest to God prayed the most. It's often true here about our walk in faith, isn't it? The, the, the faithful pray, the more faithful pray, the more often. But he, he prayed continually with loud crying and tears. We think particularly of the garden, uh, agony there, uh, tears and sweat as blood. But not just there, but many times, uh, prayer, supplication with crying and tears to the one who would save him. He even say, Father, if it's your will, let me be spared of this. But it wasn't, so he underwent it. But he, he, he trusted in God, and he was faithful, and he was heard. He was heard in his, again, piety or godly fear. Uh, he's heard in his reverence to God. There's a lot of ways people have tried to explain this verse. It is kind of a difficult verse in some ways. I think the best explanation is uh, it's, it's that uh, faithful fear, the, the fear that's be the beginning of knowledge, uh, right, from the Proverbs and the Psalms, the fear that's the beginning of wisdom, the fear of the Lord uh, by which we honor and respect God. I think that's the fear uh, that's here. And so, although he was a son, verse 8, he learned obedience in what he suffered. So here's Jesus, the crown prince, the as it were. Here's Jesus, who is God. And he has given this lofty position that he's been, he's made the priest of the people. Now, sometimes when you have someone who, based on the basis of family connections, gets in charge of a thing, right? Uh, we often call that nepotism when it worked out poorly. Uh, but uh, uh, there's privilege and responsibility granted, uh, not on the basis of experience and proof, but on the basis of, of uh, kinship. Well, sometimes that can go pretty poorly. But in this case comes Jesus, the most helpful and experienced man to do it. So not just is he connected, he is certainly, not just is he connected, but he's also uh, the one with the best and most experience. He wasn't spared uh, hardship uh, because of his connection uh, to the Father. He, he wasn't in that way given special uh, treatment uh, to spare him from difficulty. He had a more difficult path in many ways, uh, in probably most ways, than those that he saves. 
And so, uh, you know, it says about him in his youth from Luke 2 and 52, he increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. And so he, he increased in these things by experience. Certainly there's a way we can say Jesus had all knowledge from the beginning. You know, after all, what would you teach Jesus? But there's another sense in which he did learn uh, by doing. And so there was a practical learning, a practical experience about it, not just an academic knowledge of it. And so in this, he was perfected. He was completed. Uh, it wasn't just in prospect that he could do these things or in theory that he could know these things, but in actual experience of doing these things, he was perfected. Thus, verse 9, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, having been designated by God as a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And so for those who will follow him, when he gives instruction as the Messiah, as the priest, he doesn't just command in a uh, you know, capricious fashion, or he doesn't just do it uh, in a haughty fashion. He does it as an experienced person who's been through the difficulties, and he gently instructs us and tells us the way that we should go, the way that he himself has already walked. But he, having walked this path, he asks us to follow in his steps, right? First Peter chapter 1, uh, or uh, First Peter 2, sorry, uh, that uh, we walk as he walked. We walk in the steps of Christ. And so for those who obey him, for those who uh, become his disciple, to follow the path that the Father had him walk to our salvation and for our salvation, we now walk that path. As we'll find out here in the book of Hebrews, he's the author of our salvation, the captain of our salvation, the one who planned it and the one who walked it out in front of us, the one who marked and made the path. And he says, follow me. If you're a follower of him, one of those who obey him, then he will save you. And that's what he's come to do. So that's the first part of Christ's great priesthood. Obviously, more and at greater length could have been said. But in chapter 7, when we get back to this, more and at greater length will be said. But the Hebrew writer interrupts himself at this point, says, I've got some of that I, more I want to tell you, but I, I need to do some first principle work first. And so with that, we're going to go back into an exhortation section, an exhortation telling us the terrible things that happen if we neglect uh, this learning and this way of God. But tonight, the things of great encouragement for those who would follow. So faithfully follow, because for all those who walk in his steps, he is the source of eternal salvation. Thank you for listening to this sermon from the Malvane Church of Christ. Additional sermons and information available at malvanechurch.com. Come see what a difference the Bible way makes.